You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Happy New Year! (laughs) We are so excited at Bride Ministries about 2019 for, for a number of reasons. I think that 2019 is going to be a year where delay ends for a number of us, where we begin to see things that have been withheld manifest. I I see 2019 as a real breakout year for a lot of people, uh, our ministry included, and my wife and I personally. We're just uh, getting a lot of positive words about the year, and, and, and so I, I I pray that your 2019 is filled with much of the same breakthrough and an end of delay. I am very excited that we are going to be in Australia at the end of February. Many of you write in, ask, when's Dan coming back to Australia, you know, so on and so forth. We're going to be back and we are going to be in Adelaide. At Field of Dreams, there's going to be more details that come out in the next week or so here, and we'll be making weekly announcements about this conference, but we're very excited. I am going to be the guest speaker from out of the country, but there's going to be others ministering there, uh, and um, I, I I am just really anticipating a, a move of God. And so if you are in Australia and, and you don't mind traveling a little bit, maybe you don't live in Adelaide, but you're somewhere around, I mean, start making some travel plans because this is happening and it's going to be a real special time. And details are going to be going up on our website, bridemovement.com. I am so looking forward to seeing how God continues to uh, expand things. Well, our book, Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth, has just made so much impact. Uh, the testimonies continue to to pour in from that book. It's just profound. I, I, I get on the phone with so many people for the first time, and it just amazes me that, you know, the first thing out of their mouth is, you know, I've been using your book, Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth, and man, and, and then the testimonies begin. And I just want you to know, folks, if you haven't gotten that book yet, it is power packed. It's it's not a book just to read or to get some edumacation. You know, it, it's a book to use to punch the devil in the teeth and get what's been stolen from you back and get some deliverance and some healing and hedge up your lives. And it, it, it's just a very effective tool. And I, I really want to encourage um, that proliferation of that book because I know that this book contains keys that will unlock the body of Christ. And so if you have a friend that maybe hasn't heard about it, think of picking up a copy for him. I mean, the book is only $10 on our website. And so with that said, I am going to get right to the program. We actually have something really cool today. My special friend Jan is going to be joining us for part two of her story. And for those of you that continue to support us financially, just know last year was an incredible year for Bride Ministries financially. We have put a lot of money away. Why? Because we're saving up for things like survivor housing and things that will cost us some money to get into. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of things that we really want to see happen and others in our community really want to see happen. But the fact of the matter is that 
it, it costs money. And if you don't create debt, then you need cash up front. And so we are just very excited to now have some savings and, and to be working towards some bigger projects. I want to encourage you. It, this platform has sown into you and you have been really blessed by it. Consider sowing into the work that we're doing. Um, we are just endeavoring to touch lives all over the planet. And so with that said, BrideMovement.com, there is a donate page. You can always write to us at P.O. Box 835-661, Richardson, Texas, 75083. And uh, watch out on that P.O. Box because my wife and I are moving kind of down the street, not too far from where we are now. But we may be getting a new P.O. Box. And so, uh, well, that'll be clear when it happens. So anyway, enjoy the program. I'll see you on the other side. Folks, we are back on Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall, and I am here talking with my friend and client, Jan, who has joined me once before for Journeying with Jan Part 1. She is a survivor of satanic ritual abuse and government-sponsored mind control agendas, and she has even encountered folks like Mengala. Her story is fascinating and painful, and she is super brave. Why? Because she's sitting down to talk to us about what happened. And so I am very excited to bring you back on for a round two. Welcome back to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Thank you, Dan. I just appreciate it so much that you've let me uh, come on and share my story. And it's just good to be back with you again. Thank you. Well, it's really good to have you. And you know, we talked about a number of things <clears throat> regarding your story that were difficult. And we really only got through aspects of your childhood in our first interview. We didn't get very far into adulthood. And we were only able to get to a few of the memories that you have recovered about the things that you've endured. Now, I want to open up by giving you an opportunity to give us a little bit of a review on the things that you shared last time so that we can walk into what we're going to today. Okay. Um, first off, before I go anywhere, I'd like to just thank all of your listeners. How wonderful a bunch of people you have out there. I was so afraid to even look at comments and people were so, they were so generous, so nice, so loving, so supportive. And I just, I love them all. Thank you. Thank you everybody. Really. It was wonderful. So my story, last, last time we came together, um, I told about how I really got into this whole remembering mess in the first place because up until 1984, I had no memories of any abuse, any abuse, none. My parents, I thought they were perfect. And I went into a really bad depression, long depression in 1984 ended up checking myself into a hospital, uh, a mental health ward of a hospital. And in, while I was in the mental health ward, I had three memory, three, well, two memories, a memory of sexual abuse with my mother and uh, sexual abuse with my father, a rape by my father when I was seven. And um, it's there that 
all of my um, emotion, I was completely emotionally blocked and um, my memories were all blocked. And so in that place, I had to start coming to terms with the idea that my life wasn't what I thought it was, that it was totally different. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I spent a lot of time in the hospital beating on walls. The anger and the resentment and the bitterness was so deep and um, just um, it, w- it would actually interrupt my physical well-being. Uh, the anger was so deep. And so I would wake up in the morning and I would have to go in and beat on the walls of our, what we call the seclusion room to even be able to go eat breakfast. I would be so upset. And so I got really good at <laughs> letting the anger out. And uh, they, they were happy to let me do that every day. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. But you know, Jan, the thing is, your anger wasn't repressed just because of abuse in the physical realm, things that were very natural and understandable to the normal human 3D worldview. As it goes, we have recovered some memories of other things that happened that were very supernatural and extraordinary that also contributed to the anger and the repression of emotions. One of them being an instance where you were being impregnated by entities from another place. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about this memory because the implications are far reaching. Go ahead. Yeah. The interesting thing is that this, this memory actually started in that hospital setting. When I was in the hospital, there was a guy there and he was uh, manic depressive and he was in a manic mode while he was there. And he and I sort of butted head, heads a few times. And um, he mentioned, he was bragging about something he knew about that nobody else knew about. And I, and I mentioned to him, well, I knew something that had happened too. And in my mind at the time, it seemed like a, like a Rosemary's baby or something like that. Now, I had no idea of my background at this point, none. And so um, when I left the hospital after six weeks, and we didn't have passes, we couldn't leave the hospital physically. I had one pass with my husband. And um, so I left the hospital feeling like I was pregnant for no good reason. And I carried that feeling in my body for three months. And then suddenly it was gone. And I just sort of chalked it up to, well, a lot of funny things happened when I was in the hospital. It was, you know, quite an amazing experience. And didn't think too much about it until recently, until some of the work that we have gotten into. And I think the memory that that you're talking about was... um, I was trying to think how we started, how we started out on this little, <laughs> this journey, this particular journey that we took. Um, but you called in Jesus. We were in a session. You called in Jesus like you normally do. Uh, a false Jesus showed up, which <laughs> isn't unusual. <laughs> so this time, this particular time, you called in the Lion of Judah, which I think by this time I had. I had met the Lion of Judah, so that was comforting, and I knew that he was the real deal. 
So um, as you let me go into the, the arena of my memory, um, I saw myself taken out of body. And I saw myself going into a spaceship, which was really strange because I never had any memories or never had any experience that I recalled of ever being on any kind of a spaceship of any kind. But that's where I saw, saw myself being taken. I think when I, when I saw that that's where I was going in this memory, denial came in immediately. I mean, it was like just took me over and it just pulled me back far enough that I wasn't able to get a hold of that part of the memory. But what happened was it took me to another memory that I'd already been aware of, even though I hadn't recalled the entire memory. And that memory was of a ritual that I was a part of that I always I always called it or recognized it as a marriage to Satan, but I knew in my heart that it was actually a divorce to Satan. I really didn't know much more than that. So as, um, as we worked through this memory that day, I, I actually saw uh, from a distance kind of the, the memory as it unfolded. Mm-hmm. I saw two beings. One was Satan. I recognized him. The other being was uh, an alien being of some sort. I later found out that he was from Sirius. And uh, in this memory, um, I, they had done a, an abortion on me. And actually, I had been impregnated. I believe now that it was on that spaceship at the time that I was in the hospital, that I was impregnated at that time, out of the body, somehow. So in the, in the memory, the being from Sirius and Satan, there were twins, hmm. and they both had one of the twins. I believe the twins were actually in their fetus stage, but in the memory, I saw them as babies. So I'm not 100% sure. I think they were really fetuses. They were doing a lot of covenants between them. And at the end of this ritual, they ate the fetuses. So I really didn't understand what that was all about, you know, in that moment when this memory came back. Later, the Lord started downloading information for me. And uh, apparently, because I was in a bloodline family, and I was in a witchcraft, an ancient Gnostic witchcraft bloodline, I, according to the cult, or the kings of the earth, if you will, I was given authority over a part of the earth. And it didn't mean that I owned it, but according to them, I had authority mm-hmm. over a part of the earth. And in 1978, I was, I'd had a really bad encounter with some of the cult people, and I was refusing to cooperate with what they wanted to do. And um, so I think that's how I ended up being in this um, 
this ritual in the first place was because I was not cooperating. And essentially what they were doing is they were taking my authority over this portion of the earth and they were giving it to this entity from Sirius. And he had actually been operating in the earth, but he didn't have the property authority to do that. So for, according to them, by doing this ritual, that would give him the authority to operate in the earth legally, quote unquote, legally. I don't, I don't really understand the full implications of that. I don't know what area of the earth that I was involved in. I know I spent a lot of time in Germany and uh, I have a lot of German background and I suspect that it's probably maybe in some of that area or maybe even in Russia because I also have a background there. So, um. And I want to um, just interject because you're going to tell us the rest of the story and what we were able to do about it. Uh, but before you get there, you bring up such an important point. The, the kings of the earth, you know, overseers of the cults, which includes the Illuminati and other groups with various names, uh, they're trying to bring as much evil into the earth as possible. They're, they're, they're trying to create dimensional bridges to the evil realms of the heavens, so to speak, the places where the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. They, they're trying to exchange, trade, and bridge to those regions and spirits that are overseeing those regions to bring them into the earth, their kingdoms, their power. And they have very unique ways of doing that, which I think is outside of what most of the church has understood or considered. Uh, rituals of the nature that you are describing lie at the base of how they're doing some of what they're doing. And until someone like you stands up and says, I remember, and this is how they did it, uh, we just think, you know, they're dancing around a fire and beating drums. That's not the extent of the technology and the understanding and the depth of, well, uh, con commitment they have to these things. And you, you mentioned that you have authority in the earth according to their understanding. And I, you know, this is my opinion. Um, you know, I think that this has to do with bloodline and generational iniquity, where if they are able to take an ancestor and invoke some kind of defilement, say you have uh, a, a king 10 generations back that slaughtered an entire people group and put blood in the land. Well, there's an iniquity in that land that ties to the bloodline. And then you take that bloodline and you put that person through a bunch of rituals and their children through a bunch of rituals and you do not introduce them to Jesus Christ. Now you have compiled bloodline iniquity and that child is tied into the iniquity of the father, which ties them to the slaughter of an entire people group. So if you can, through generation after generation after generation, introduce uh, an amassing of iniquity that ties people to various lands and geographies through injustice and grave injustices, you can, from an occult perspective, actually have people that have authority for all the wrong reasons over regions of the earth. And 
when they are then used for rituals and different things because of that compiling of iniquity, there's more power available. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how I look at that. And I think that those that are listening to this, if they look at, well, their bloodlines and the iniquities associated there and what maybe they've been used for in the occult, the numbers will start to add up. Mm -hmm. But God, but Jesus. So Jen, what happened after we began to discover the memory? Um, well, another part of the memory that I had forgotten until just now was that the supposedly this guy from Sirius and Satan were brothers back before the fall of Lucifer. So back in those days. But uh, we came back and you sent out angels to capture this guy from Sirius. And uh, he was captured. And I built a prison. And he was imprisoned. And... Uh, the royal a royal guard was brought in, and I saw them as having um, they had like sunflower gold uniforms, gold and blue uniforms, and so um, I don't remember if we did anything else with him or not. I think he might still be in prison out there somewhere, waiting, <laughs> waiting his trial. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, well, amen. Um, so, for reasons such as this, I mean, you were amnesic, you were emotionally flat, you had repressed anger. Uh, there's a lot of other things that happened in this hospital. Why don't you tell us about the bottles and the testing? Oh, uh, well, this actually happened before I went to the hospital. This was at the, the very depth of the depression. And I, I just, I was almost catatonic with just, I just didn't have anything left in me. And one day I was in my kitchen and it, it just came to me that I had these bottles. They were actually beer bottles and they looked like hand grenades. They were green. And I had saved them thinking I'd have a party someday and use them. I wasn't born again. My husband and I drank beer so I went down to the basement and I grabbed a box of these bottles and I brought them up and I started mixing these bottles with water and food colorings. And I started making a bottle for virtually everybody I knew. <laughs> and you couldn't see what color was in the bottle because the food because the bottles were green. But I knew exactly what color was in there because I was mixing them so perfectly. <laughs> And uh, I had bottles for my second grade teacher. <laughs> I, had, I had bottles for everybody in my life. I had no idea what I was going to do with these bottles. I, I felt like a mad scientist, you know, in the kitchen mixing all this stuff up. It was in my, my thought was that I would take them. We had an empty building across the alley from us. And I thought, I'm going to take these bottles over there. I'm going to smash them up, up against that wall. And then I can see the colors, you know flowing down. I had no idea that this was anger. I couldn't even identify it as anger. I'd never felt anger before in my life, but that's what it was. And I spent so much time, I spent the whole afternoon doing this little project. So by the time I got to the end of the project, the anger was all gone, I guess. <laughs> I just put the bottles away Food coloring and all, I thought, if, that, if this feeling ever hits me again, I'll have the bottles. They'll be ready, and I'll go over and smash them. 
up against that wall. But you know, when I when I went into the hospital, it's like the anger started opening up all the other emotions, and pretty soon I started I started experiencing emotions by going back to the very first time in my life I felt that emotion, like the first time I felt joy, the first time I felt resentment, the first time I felt fear. And I actually went back to that moment and that, that age level when that happened. It was an amazing process. But eventually all those emotions started opening up to me again that had been shut down for all those years. Mm. It was it was a fun process, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so, h- h- how did you perform on ink blots? Well, I had uh, before I went in the hospital again. I was in uh, counseling, and uh, the counselor couldn't figure out what was going on with me because I had no memories. So, um, I she ordered up some psychological uh, testing for me, and part of that psychological testing was. Um, uh, ink blots, like you see all the time, and um, the ink blots became just a really a kind of a curiosity and an, and an irritation in a way because I didn't know what they meant. Uh, they just they really uh, impacted me on a deep level, and um, there were bats, there were turtles that had been smashed, there were. Uh, what I called aborigines in a pot of stew. I mean, things that made no sense to me. But eventually, they all matched up to memories that I had. There was another thing that they tested me on, and it was you imagined yourself as a, as a circle, and then you described yourself going from the outside in. And for me, the core, the center part, was black, and it was like tar. And I didn't, I'm like, how can that be? I thought I was a really good person. How could I possibly have this black, sticky center? Mm. And uh, I found out about that too. (laughs) So (laughs) glad to say it's no longer black and sticky. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Amen. And, you know, these are the, the kinds of things that, well, you're not alone in Jan. Many people that have taken this journey have found that things like inkblot tests. Well, it's bringing something up. I um, want you to talk a little bit about the um, full body manifestations that you eventually started going through. After wow. Discharge. Yeah. After I was discharged on um, New Year's, uh, a couple days before New Year's, my husband and I had uh, had arranged to go to the city and uh, go out with a couple of our friends and make a night of it. And we stayed in the motel. So uh, the first thing that happened was we were at this bar and I wasn't drinking because I'd just gotten out of the hospital. And every man that walked in the door, I just wanted to go over and kill (laughs) i had murder i had murder in my heart and it's because all this emotion had been opened up all the anger and bitterness and 
the memories still weren't there, but the feelings were all over the place. And so I just held it together that night, you know. But the next morning we were in the motel room and I started having what I call uh, convulsions. My, it would start out, my arm would start pounding the bed and pretty soon it would be my shoulder, then it would be my other arm, then it would be both legs. And I was actually coming off the bed. My whole body was in, in motion. My husband had, um, he had a younger brother that had, um, oh, I can't think of the name of it. Um, uh, it's a disease where you have um, convulsions or a seizure. Legs. Seizure disorder. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was uh, a seizure. Seizure. So, so he wasn't afraid of it. I mean, he was used to seeing that kind of thing. But he was worried that somebody in the hotel was going to come find, you know, because everything was, the bed was, everything was pounding. I was coming clear off the bed in these, in these. And it would come as waves uh, over my body and uh, full body. And then, then it would go away. I had um, uh, mental things going on in my mind, but I couldn't, I couldn't put words to anything. And this went on for about 20, 25 minutes. We were getting close to checkout time. He was getting nervous that somebody was going to come and see what, if he was beating me up or something, I guess. And he just made me set up on the bed and uh, start functioning. And so I was able to pull myself out of the seizures, but I continued to have small ones the rest, the rest of that day. I've never really understood what that was all about. Um, if it was a memory or if it was just uh, the accumulating emotions that, you know, were ripping through my body. I'm not sure, but uh, it was interesting. Wow. How long did that go on for that this was happening to you? Probably 20 or 25 minutes as best as I can remember. I, it felt like it could have gone on all day if he hadn't made me sit up and, and leave the motel, you know. Oh, my God. Um, well, let's get into uh, some of the things that they did in order to repress your memories, including the split brain programming. What can you tell us? You know, I don't, I don't know how they did that specifically, but when I was in the hospital, uh, I became aware that I had something going on where connections were be being made between my left and right side of my brain. I could feel the connections happening, and this was at the same time where I was starting to have emotions, uh, and I could identify each emotion. And during the time that that was happening, um, I, I couldn't, if somebody would come visit me, I couldn't just sit and have a conversation with them. I would have to be drawing or writing or distracting myself in some way, or I would be so dizzy I couldn't, I couldn't function. So I learned later through, I think, I think it might have been through some of um, Fritz Springmeier's work that they actually do split brain programming. And so I suspect that that was probably done on me uh, I all, it's also come to me that I had a uh, brainstem scarring, which is another thing that they do um, in the programming. And 
I think a lot of um, Mingala was part of a lot of that kind of programming, I think. And I did, I was programmed by Mingala, so. And um, folks, you know, a lot of you are going to be familiar with the term split brain programming. But for those of you that are not, essentially, this is when the brain is programmed via hemisphere so that what goes into one hemisphere isn't being shared or communicated with what's in the other hemisphere. And so a lot of the evil, the bad, the dark, the satanic gets pushed to the left-hand side of the body, the right hemisphere of the brain, and the good, the godly, if a person has been raised as a Christian or put in church, they have the religious programming, the version of themselves that's acceptable to society, that goes on the right-hand side or the left hemisphere of the brain. And there's a divide between, so there's no communication. So essentially, it, it's a true parable. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And this as was, you know, at least in, in, in this style of programming, a very effective way of maintaining amnesia. And many times when a person's split brain programming begins to break down, it's very weird because they will feel sensations only on one side of the body or the other. And it can be very awkward. And in our work, what we have found many times is that as God begins to heal the person, part of that healing actually happens physically in the brain where neural networks are being reconnected between left and right hemispheres as Jesus is healing the person. He's actually rewiring the brain. It's not all just spiritual or emotional. There is actual physical healing the brain needs at times um, during the work, and, and we've seen Jesus doing it. So now you began to get some healing, body, soul, spirit, and what happened when you started to get some of the memories and the emotions? Mm. Well, when I left the hospital, I found a, a, a counselor. He was a psychologist. And um, I actually found him. He was in the paper, and he was um, advertising that he did hypnosis. And uh, when I got my memories back in the hospital, I felt like I was in a state of hypnosis mm -hmm. because they didn't come back as a, a regular memory. You know, they were, they were different. And so I called him, made an appointment, and started going to him. And um, I, I saw him for six years. And we worked, um, I saw him once a week. Sometimes I'd meet with him an hour. Sometimes it'd be two or three hours, depending on, um, you know, what we were working on. And I, during that time, I was recovering a lot of memories, but I would call them normal memories, maybe even normal sexual abuse memories, but I had no memories of a cult yet or programming or anything like that. So about the fifth year, uh, we had tried to do some hypnosis and I just could not, I, he'd, he'd be saying, you're going to float downstream and I'd be swimming upstream, you know? I mean, everything he said, I was going against. And I'm like, this is not working very well. <laughs> so, so at home, I decided maybe I can do this myself. Maybe I can just take myself into hypnosis. So I just started trying to go deeper and deeper and deeper into myself. And I finally came to this pond. And around this pond, there were these children. 
<laughs> and I thought, well, that's interesting. So I kept, every day I kept going back to this pond and after a few days I started talking to some of the children. And um, it was about this time that um, I think James Friesen came out his, with his book, Uncovering the Mystery of MPD. And somehow I'd gotten a hold of that book. And that started, then I started, you know, connecting those things together. And I'm like, whoa, this might be what's going on. So then I started engaging these children. And um, I didn't know at the time, but, um, but there were things about these children that actually were giving me clues about um, my history. But I didn't know that at the time. I was just visiting with children at the pond, halfway between where they lived and I lived. And so one of them had, uh, one of them I remember was sitting on the, on the wall of the pond and she had a daisy and she was plucking the petals off the daisy. Well, I learned later that that's part of Mingala programming. So she was part of the ones, one of the ones that was programmed by him. There were also two that were, they were completely naked. <laughs> they were two girls and they were twins. I knew they were twins. And I found out later that they represented my aunt and I, and I had an aunt that we were, we were actually programmed in the cult together and twinned together in a ritual. And um, I didn't find that out until much later. Then I had a little part called Mary Agnes. And Mary Agnes, it, I found out later that she had been named after the, the nun that had held me when I was injured at, at two and a half years old. She's the one that introduced me to the picture of Jesus when I really believe I received Jesus in the deepest part of my heart. And that nun's name was Mary Agnes. So Mary Agnes was named after the nun. And I think I explained all or talked about this in the first podcast. Sure. So Mary Agnes was kind of the, uh, the bossy one. She kind of, you know, bossed everybody around and you could tell she was kind of the leader of the group. And so I had been, uh, my aunt had led me to the Lord as an adult, not that long before this started taking place. And um, so one day I, I went to the pond and when I got there, Jesus was sitting on a rock and all the children were sitting around at his feet, except for May, Mary Agnes. And Mary Agnes was on her feet and she had her, hip, her hands on her hips and she was just marching back and forth in front of Jesus. Like, what are you doing here? Who are you? <laughs> you don't belong in this group. <laughs> and I could see her mouth, was, her, her mouth was going 20 miles an hour and he was just sitting there shaking his head, listening, listening. And so the next time I look back, now she's sitting on his lap. And her mouth is still going 90 miles a minute. And he's still listening and listening. And the third time I look back, he had her by the hand and they were walking off together. Oh. <laughs> and Mary Agnes, it was weeks and weeks before Mary Agnes came back into my picture because she was with Jesus wherever. I think she took, and took him and showed him the system, the system within. And, and, uh, he let her take him on a tour. <laughs> well, before we go any further with Mengala and the twinning, um, mm -hmm. because we do need to get there, 
I want to let you talk a little bit more about the system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what people need to understand is that for most survivors, what they will find as they begin to go through inner healing and the veil gets pulled back and they realize that they are dissociated, is that there is a presence of what I call an inner world. And this is not something that's just a psychiatric term or new age terminology or something that does not ground out in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it does ground out in the Bible. And the way I would explain it is that we are given a heart, right? And the heart is a place where Jesus sows the seed of his word. And if you look in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, it's very clear that the heart is the field that the seed is being sown into because an explanation of Matthew 13, Jesus is explaining that when the seed goes on the wayside ground, the enemy, Satan, comes in and snatches what was sown in the heart, thus equating the heart with the field. And when we understand that a field can be seeded with something. We also understand that you can build a barn on a field. You can build a house on a field. Some of you live in housing developments that once were a cornfield. <laughs> and what we begin to see is that from this parable, how God makes the connection between the heart and the field, that the territory of our heart is in fact a territory that can be built out. It's synonymous with the subconscious. And that is where the dissociated parts will live. They live in the subconscious and the subconscious can be built out to, to massive, I mean, extraordinary sizes uh, that, that become internal world, which can include cities, dungeons, prisons, laboratories, libraries, anything you'd find in the physical 3D world can actually be lodged within a person's subconscious and their parts will begin to interact with it. Now, having given that foundation, Jan, your inner world was called Bly, and I'd like to give you some time to explain to our audience what you found in yours. Hmm. Well, Bly was actually a place in my system, a place in my inner world that was a very secret place. And um, I only knew that Mary Agnes had access to it access to that area but um, I had never been I the presenter had never been into Bly but uh, we went there one day <laughs> I knew it was a place that children were taken when they were um, hurt or sorrowful or needed healing I knew that it was a place of safety, I thought. And there was actually, when I met the parts, um, all the parts of the pond, there was, I found out there was a, a black man who lived in Bly. And I saw him as almost like a Jesus figure. And I knew that the children would be taken there when they were injured or hurt and that he would tell them stories. And, um, and, and that they would be healed in that place called Bly. So when I met Jesus, the real Jesus, I invited what we called him the black man. I invited him to 
leave now because I didn't see that we needed him anymore. And he was very kind, very generous, very loving, mm -hmm. and um, very politely left and never came back. And it was like, it's always been a mystery. Who was this guy? I still don't know who he was. But anyway, that's kind of a side note. But the day that, uh, the day that we, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no, please. I mean, these are the details, Jan. Let me tell you, these are the details. Because you think you're the only one until you say something and someone else listens and says, what? that's my story. So share all you need to. Oh, boy. So um, you, uh, we were in a session, and you suggested maybe we might, might want to go to Bly and see what was there. So Mary Agnes took us to Bly, but, and there was a, a gatekeeper there. His name was Albert. And uh, come to find out, we couldn't get into Bly because you had to have a passcode word. And so, <laughs> and so Mary Agnes had some kind of a password, like abracadabra or skippy do or I don't it's some crazy word but anyway it opened the door and we and we went in so as we went in I saw on each side it was like a hallway on each side there were these um, counters like uh, like a drugstore counter and behind the counters were file or not file cabinets but um, bookshelves full of uh, books and so, and this was just the entryway into Bly. So I'm standing there in the entryway and you asked Mary Agnes to pull down a book off the shelf and read some titles. So she started reading these titles. And in my mind, I'm thinking, whoa, <laughs> these kind of sound like program codes. <laughs> and about that time, I saw some wires hanging out the back of these books she was pulling down off the shelf. And then I saw that the books actually look like computer cards, you know, with um, you know, machinery on them. And I think that's about the time that you started praying up <laughs> and you call, you call for the Lion of Judah. And so at this time, I had never experienced the Lion of Judah. I, I, in fact, I, I'm ashamed to say now that I kind of poo-pooed the whole thing because I knew Jesus or thought I knew Jesus as Jesus and mm -hmm. the whole idea of him being a lion. I'm like, that's a, like a cartoon, you know, and I didn't really want to go there. So when you called for the lion of Judah, I saw a cartoon lion. <laughs> it, it looked like a lioness on the, on that movie, The Lion, the Lion King or something. And it was sitting there nonchalantly licking its paw. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't think this is right. <laughs> so I think I said something to you about Daniel. I don't think this is the real Lion of Judah. And so you, you went into warfare mode at that point. You called in the real Lion of Judah and he came. I saw him off to the side. And I think, I think at that point you called your for your locator. You called a, a locator to see where we were going. You know, because <laughs> we were always I, going somewhere. <laughs> I, I, um, okay, so so just before you continue and finish the story, 
the, the stories of, of real life ministry. Fake Jesus programming is rampant. I really appreciate being able to work with Jesus inside of a survivor's system because he is God. He's incredible. He's full of love and joy and compassion and, and, you know, he shows the way and so forth. But when there is fake Jesus programming, it doesn't work. And as a matter of fact, the moment I call for Jesus or Yeshua, because <laughs> sorry, all you Hebrew roots folks, there are fake Yeshuas. I, I, I don't care what anyone says. Cause I've met them. <laughs> and they're just as fake as the fake Jesuses. doesn't matter what, what you call, you could call them a fake Jesus, same thing in the program, fake lion of the tribe of Judah. They show up. And when you call for him and, and you know, the fake one shows up, if you try to work with the fake one, it's a disaster every time. It never works. Things go wrong. He, he, the, the fake ones will actually abuse the parts as you're trying to, they'll put shame and condemnation in there. And if you, here's a real bad mix. If you have a person trying to uh, do coaching with somebody or counseling and they have a very religious program set on the inside of them and the fake Jesus shows up with the religious program, they'll actually cooperate with the fake Jesus and not know they're doing it. And I've met survivors of this kind of ministry and it's like the first thing we do is kick out the fake Jesus they thought was the one they were supposed to be working with, with the other guy, because it agreed with all of their religious programming that this person and all their parts should go to hell. It was not, you know, but like all kinds of misunderstandings can happen. So the fake Jesus program is a problem. And when I run into the fake Jesus program, I immediately get angry. I just move into judgment mode. It's like this whole thing is about to come under the weight of the mallet of God's judgment right now. I'm smashing the uh, fake Jesus program to smithereens. So I, I will get upset, frustrated, and start smashing stuff in the spirit until the real Jesus Christ, <laughs> the real land of the tribe of Judah, shows up. And um, sometimes this can actually take a long time. You know, you're, it's great if it can happen in one session, but sometimes people have so many issues and so much programming around this, it could take a month or longer to even get an individual to connect with the real Jesus Christ. So anyway, having said that, we went into prayer, we went into warfare, we smashed, lions showed up. Go ahead. I'm so glad you mentioned that about the face fake Jesus is because I know in our work, you've smashed quite a few fake Jesuses. And I know we won't get to it today, but I, in 95, I went through deprogramming and there was an army, a, a literal army of fake Jesuses hmm. that I dealt with. And here we are, how many years later, I'm still, I'm still dealing with fake Jesuses. But the Lion of Judah was, was the perfect way for me to get around that once i connected with the lion of judah now if a fake jesus comes in i can call on the lion of judah and when he comes then i'm in i'm solid i'm i'm safe again and i thank you so much for introducing me to the lion of judah and getting rid of the other one <laughs> so I think back to the story, I think you, I think you, you have a finder of some sort. I've never understood how that works, except that when you do, when you use it, I know I go somewhere 
And so you had your finder out and um, I saw immediately uh, like a map of India. So I thought we were going to India and I saw a temple like a, a temple out in a forest and so I in my mind I'm coming down coming down from up in the sky toward this temple and I can see lions hundred I would say like 800 hundreds of lions leaving this temple running for their lives in this jungle and you're praying on the other side just praying <laughs> And these lions are running. <laughs> and at the same time, as they're getting captured on the surface, I'm seeing underground, there are tunnels, and the lions are running in the tunnels under the ground. And I think I mentioned to you, Dan, they're getting away, they're under the ground, <laughs> and you start putting up blockades at the end of these tunnels. It was happening so fast. Oh, my goodness. So I think all the, all the lions got taken care of, and I saw two doors. They were metal doors, and they were in the ground outside this temple, or maybe they were in the temple. I'm not sure, but I, I said there's two metal doors, but if you open those doors, a whole bunch of bad stuff is going to come out of there. Well, that didn't stop you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> You just opened the door and I think you put a net up or something and caught all the junk that was coming flying out of that place. And so all of that got taken care of. And then I saw on the bottom, under the doors on the floor in this cave or whatever it was, I saw a book. And the book was a book called Little Black Sambo. And I remembered it from my childhood. I remembered having that book. And, um, you know, frankly, I don't remember. I remember there was repentance, that I repented of things. You were leading me in prayer. And um, so all of that got taken care of as well and it hooked into my background and my history of the abuse. So it was a, quite an amazing journey that day. I never expected to be in India, you know, at the end of my counseling. <laughs> Right. So then we have, and this kind of takes us back to some of the stuff that we were dealing with and actually bringing up about the Silk Road in the first podcast we did together. You were explaining how your bondage linked to the Silk Road and to, um, I believe it was Orion. And so, so things get linked and a person's system can be tethered to a geography that they don't understand in the physical earth. And we're not going to be able to get to this, in this podcast, but when you bring into the conversation, all of the alternate earths that there are, <laughs> then it really gets fun to try to figure this stuff out. I will say this. Uh Oh, Jan, did you want to say something? No, well, the only thing I was thinking about is the India uh, and this is a recent uh, revelation for me, but I have a lot of information about India in dreams and visions and, and the work that we've done. And so uh, India just keeps popping up on my screen over and over and over and over again. So I haven't put those pieces together yet. I'm not sure where that's going to lead, but India is definitely a big player in my history, I think, for some reason. 
So the finder, and then we're going to come back to Mengele. You know, I have a device in the spirit and there's actually a lot of devices. What people need to understand is that my human spirit has a whole bunch of stuff, really, really cool heavenly technologies. And some people, you know, they don't understand that there are actual heavenly technologies. They think the only ones inventing technologies are the demons and they give them to the Nazis and forthright people. No, there are heavenly technologies that are better than their stuff. And our human spirits can receive and possess them. And my human spirit has a whole smorgasbord of uh, equipment and different kinds of things. And, and the finder actually, the gold figure was given to me, that is my spirit, by my good friend, Todd Edwards. And you, you can hear him at the Fireplace Church and also at, uh, you know, my podcast. We've done two podcasts together. He's great. And his spirit, man, one day we were actually having a conversation spirit to spirit. It was not soul to soul. We were talking spirit to spirit. And his spirit gave me the finder and something else. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but one of the things his spirit gave me were a finder. And my spirit was like, oh, this is great. So ever since that activation, it was just two brothers hanging out and letting our spirits come up and engage as opposed to our souls. Uh, I've had this finder and what it does is allow my spirit, I I can pull up the coordinates of, it's like a cosmic GPS. And I use it, I activate it with the language, I pull up my finder and engage the coordinates for something like that. And when I use that language, the coordinates of whatever I happen to be looking for or needing to find will come up and those coordinates can then be used to direct a person to seeing whatever they need to see in the spirit realm or the angel armies of God. They'll get the coordinates and they'll go there. And so we just find stuff very quickly and easily. We don't have to sit there and scratch our head for hours trying to figure it out. It's just, oh, coordinates. And, it, you know, it's just another way of uh, getting things done. I mean, just as easily, you can ask Holy Spirit, show me, or Jesus Christ, show me. I say, you know, I pull up the finder, which is a heavenly technology, and it's all working uh, from the same power source, which is Jesus, but it's just a really cool way to get things done. So that's the finder. Now, back to twinning in your aunt. So what happened there, Jan? Well, my aunt's three years older than I am. She's my mother's youngest sister. And we grew up like sisters because we were so close to the same age. And early on uh, in my work, I had a memory. Uh, it was actually my initiation into the cult, the local, the local cult. And um, in the memory, um, I was brought in and there was a dog there, like a German shepherd dog. And it was barking and I went up and I petted it. Well, the members that were there made this big deal out of, I was petting this, they called it a wolf. You know, I had some special powers because I could pet this wolf. And they kind of let me bond with that dog, I think that night. Later on in the evening, I was put on a little child's chair and I was carried in on the shoulders of some people. And, and there was, my aunt was there and there was a blood ritual done with where our blood was mingled. 
And then we were put into a, like a stone sarcophagus. I think it might have been a, a, a child's stone coffin of some sort. And um, we were in there for a, a long, long time. I, maybe all night, I don't know. But uh, while we were in there, then they uh, sacrificed this dog on top of this stone um, sarcophagus. And it, it just created a lot of trauma for the two of us. And it bonded us together uh, in a way that was, has really been lifelong. And I think after that, the program was reinforced in a lot of other ways. But that was the beginning. I think that's what started uh, our twinning program together. And it's only been recently that um, that I've realized that we were we've actually been reinforcing that program in ourselves together on phone calls. I talked to her almost every day, and I started noticing that we would agree on the. Funniest little things, like I got my hair cut today. Yeah, I got my hair cut today. Well, I got to get oil changed tomorrow. Yeah, I got to get an oil changed tomorrow. Uh, I had a hangnail yesterday. Well, I had a hangnail yesterday. I mean, it was, and, and the, the Holy Spirit, the way he does, he started highlighting those things for me. So I started paying attention to them. And I tried to stop doing that, and I couldn't. I couldn't stop it. And so then I really got worried. I thought, what is this going on? And so... Um, I, I brought it to you one day and you suggested that I do the, um, the persecutor prayer. I, my aunt has never wanted to pursue healing. She's been afraid. And, um, I don't think she was programmed nearly to the extent I was. I don't, I only have a couple memories of her, but, um, but she, over the years, I've tried to get her to pray with me about the twinning because I was aware that it was there. And she just, uh, we just couldn't get it done. So I went ahead and prayed that prayer in your book, um, the Herman, uh, the human persecutor prayer. And I think what it did was it got me enough breakthrough to be able to stop my end of the, the, uh, uh, the agreements. And when I stopped agreeing, then she started getting uncomfortable. And so then that was hard because I knew that, she was getting more and more and more uncomfortable as this came to a halt. And so I think I went back and prayed that the second, you have two of those prayers? Yeah. yeah. So I think I went back and prayed the second one. And after I prayed the second one, she finally agreed to pray with me. And so we prayed together. And once we prayed together, now I have not had any more of that going on. So I don't know if all the program has been taken care of. I don't know. But we've quit coming into agreement every day on, you know, everything. So That is so fascinating. So, one, uh, let me just say this. Twinning is a common procedure that's done in the occult world and in the programming world. It's not the same as having a physical twin in the womb twinning is basically using some kind of traumatic experience to bond two separate individuals together in a spiritual way. And so what you described is, is 
one type of trauma that they can use to create the bonding experience. And uh, it's just, I'm so sorry you had to go through all of that. Of course, so is our audience. I do want to ask you, Jan, what are some of the other signs that you noticed that indicate you've been twinned with somebody? Uh, the, the agreements that you talked about would certainly be one key, but for the person that's asking, huh, was I twinned with my mom or was I twinned with my dad or was I twinned with my sibling or was I twinned with my cousin? another family member or friend, what should I look for? Do you have other points that you began to notice or that the Lord pointed out to you? Well, I don't fully understand the twinning programming, except like you say, there is a, there is a deep, deep bonding there that can't, that's very difficult to break. And I know for, for us, for the two of us, there was a lot of uh, follow-up programming on silence, on keeping silent. So we were taken to a lot of rituals. And then um, I don't know if they tested us to see if we would talk about it, but I know we got in trouble if we talked about what we saw at the rituals. So there was this real, um, uh, a lot of work done on keeping silent. And I also came to understand that it, the twinning, the twinning, I believe, in, in my case, in my local cult, was we were to report back about each other. So basically, they made us into snitches mm -hmm. on each other mm -hmm. about what was going on in our lives to make sure and to ensure that, um, that we were following the programs, that we weren't stepping out of line, that we weren't getting with the wrong people, that we were, you know, towing the line, so to speak. And um, so I, for me, on a local level, I think that was um, probably a pretty, pretty main thing. But um, there was, I think I was also twinned uh, through the Mingala programming. I don't have a lot of information about that yet. But um, I know I, part of the thing with Mingala is they made you watch a lot of the, uh, the torture and the sacrifice and the blood, really. And so I saw a lot of things with twins because he, he studied twins a lot. And, um, so, but I don't, I don't have a lot of that information yet. It's just not, it's not at my conscious level yet. Sure. Sure. You know, I, I want to bring up twinning as it pertains to husbands and wives real quick before we move on. This is something that we have found to answer some of the tougher questions like, why didn't my mom ever leave? Or why were my parents together and so evil and terrible to each other, yet they never parted? And or why am I? in a relationship that is terrible and horrible and abusive and miserable, and I can never leave. Answer can include that those two people were twinned. And it is not uncommon for a cult to get their hands on two individuals, male and female, that they want to put together in a marriage for the purposes of the cult. And they'll twin them 
and those memories will be blocked. And that trauma bond will be the foundation upon which a relationship in the natural is built. But there will be an amnesia to that underlying trauma bond so that the things going on in the natural uh, don't make sense with, you know, and, 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 and no one really understands what's underneath that thing. And so do they program people to be together? Yes, they do. And this can be a real mess to work out when you have kids in danger, you have two parents that are programmed to be together by the cult and one begins to try to break their programming. It's a big mess, but nothing's too big for Jesus. Now, with that said, um, let's talk a little bit about soul ties and the reinforcing the programming. Yeah, so um, I don't, I don't understand a whole lot about the soul ties yet. Mm. Um, I know my aunt and I definitely had soul ties, um, and, and they're at a they're at such a deep level because of the trauma, I guess, that they that they go so deep, and um, yeah. I wish I wish I understood more about that. I, I think there's probably people I have soul ties to that I don't even relate to in the natural realm, but still affect me at an unconscious level because because I had those soul ties placed there by the cult. So so Coming back to all of the parts that you met at the pond, right? You met Mary Agnes, showed Jesus, showed us Bly. Uh, what else can you tell us about meeting parts at the pond? Hmm. Well, eventually I got comfortable with them. They got comfortable with me and I started inviting them out into the environment, into my house. And for me, it was a whole new, I'm, I'm, I remember one day waking up thinking, I've never had a private moment in my whole life. I've got all these people living inside of me. <laughs> and, and every time I'd make a trip to the pond, there were more people, more kids showing up. I felt like I had, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of kids. So I was trying to figure out how am I going to find out who they are, what they're doing there, what their story is. So I started, um, I got some art paper and crayons and pens and started inviting them to come out and draw and draw pictures. And so they did. They just started coming and they were drawing pictures. At, during that period in my life, I was waking up in the middle of the night. I'd be up three or four hours every night. And that was the time I would invite my secret parts into coming out so nobody else would know. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the pictures that they drew ended up being evidence and hints uh, of things to come, of, other, of memories that would come. And they provided evidence in advance, if you will, um, to, the, to the memories that hadn't surfaced yet. So that was a total blessing to be able to have that happen. I also invited them to, to journal their stories. And so each one would come out and tell their story of how they came to be 
And it was an amazing, uh, just amazing process of all of their stories coming together, intertwined, interrelated, to build the history of my life, the part of my life I never knew existed. And it was so intricate and so detailed and so funny. Uh, the stories were funny because it was like these little kids that had had this, their lives were nothing like my life had been at the surface. <laughs> so it was fun. It was fun to hear their stories and to hear how they were created and why they were created. And, and I found out that, even though we were programmed, and I didn't know this at the time that we were programmed by the cult, by Mingla, but we learned how to do that. We learned how to split. We learned how to, you know, if two parts didn't get along, they'd just make some more parts. <laughs> or if there was a job nobody wanted to do, they'd just create a, a, a part to do that job. So not only were we being programmed with parts, but we were creating our own parts just to get through the days and and uh, do what we needed to do. So it was quite a, quite an amazing journey. Goodness gracious. And uh, they started giving you a lot of information over time. They did. I had, uh, in counseling, I had gotten a lot of information just about my normal, what, what would have been a normal childhood, except I had learned to block things out. So virtually everything was blocked out of my childhood. But when the parts came forward, they started telling the secrets. And the secrets were, you know, a lot of the sexual abuse. And eventually, um, I, did come, I did come to the memory that I talked about in the last podcast um, of the, the black boy that was killed. And when that memory came, it opened up a whole new arena of memories for me. It was like a key that opened uh, a door to a lot of uh, the occult memories. And about the same time that that memory came back, my father came to my house one day and I had not, I had not talked with my mother or father since 1984. And when he came to my house, he was delivering a, a stove that I had given them years ago. And my part, Mary Agnes, the little bossy one, showed up and started talking to my father in like a coded language. And I'm witnessing this off to the side. She had control of the body. Mm. And they were bantering back and forth. And I knew that my dad was making threats to me about coming into line. And... um and Mary Agnes was just very obstinate and was not backing down at all. She was right in his face. And so there was another guy there with my dad to help unload that stove. And he was looking at us like, what's going on here? This is really strange. So after my dad left, it just, uh, the whole reality of the occult and the memories I'd had and that my dad was part of it, really, just flooded in on me and I got really scared. And so I had, um, I knew that the, the person that was in charge of the hospital where I'd stayed in 84, I knew that she was working in the city now. I called her on the phone that day and I said, I 
I was in the occult. My dad was just here. He triggered me. I'm afraid. And she said, shut your mouth. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. I'm going to see if I can get you in the hospital down here. And she did. She made an appointment. My husband came home that night and I was, the paranoia and the fear kept, kept increasing throughout the day. And uh, more and more people that I had considered safe zones, I was losing them and they were becoming uh, threatening zones. And so by the time my husband got home, he was the only one I trusted. We got in the car, we had to drive 75 miles to the city. By the time we got probably 10 miles out of town, I was afraid of my husband. And I had, I thought, he's going to take me to a gas station and park and they will pick me up and this will be the end of me. You know, I was so afraid. I was terrified. And so um, uh, he dropped me off at a friend's house in Kansas City and they took me to the hospital the next day and I checked myself in. And uh, then... Um, that hospital had, uh, they had just started working with people with um, dissociative identity disorder. And there was a doctor there that had studied under, uh, I think his name was Braun. He was really kind of a big guy in the MPD world at that time. And so this, this doctor had just graduated. He was a neurosurgeon and a psychiatrist. And so he immediately started testing me to see the dissociative level. And I, I tested out zero on the dissociative scale, nothing. And I'd been working with all these parts for all these months. And I'm like, that can't be true. How can that be? So he suggested that uh, he would like to do a sodium amytal interview with me, which is like a truth serum. And so I was willing to do anything. I'm like, you know, I've got to have some answers here. So the first interview that he did, he met my part, some of my parts. John was the main one that he met and started working with John. And uh, I talked about him in the last episode. And so any, they got to be pretty good buddies over the, I, I had several of those interviews over time while I was in the hospital and then after I left the hospital. But I found out, um, during the memories that were coming up during that time, that the psychologist that I'd been in counseling with for six years was in a memory that I had uh, that was what I call a trial memory where they picked up a woman off the street, they brought her in, all the children were supposed to be the jury, and we had to find her guilty, and then she was killed in front of us. And so that was to, to seal in this idea of secrecy and so forth and so forth. Well, one of my parts had remembered this psychologist that I'd been in with for six years being at that memory when we were children. And then I also knew that my, this psychologist also was um, a poker buddy with the cult leader. And so because of those things, I just couldn't bring myself to go back. I, I went back and said goodbye and picked up all my notes and everything. But I was really, I was really, really afraid to go back and talk to him at all. Mm. 
but and so then I switched and um, the psychiatrist I started doing work with him because he already knew John <laughs> and uh, he and John uh, had quite a rapport and I he would call John out in therapy which was always very uncomfortable for me and he was the last one to do that until I met you Dan Duvall <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't let me get away with that for very long so John you got to meet John pretty quick pretty pretty early on so yeah <laughs> and John is very sweet he's a very sweet boy I mean just and <laughs> he drives a Ferrari go figure <laughs> <laughs> that's another whole story <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, and of course, that by Ferrari, I mean that John has a Ferrari on the inside in the inner world. It's really, really fast, but he doesn't drive it too fast. Ah. So, um, you know, goodness gracious, you left the hospital and I think you wanted to close this program with the first time that I met John. And so I'll let you tell all of our <laughs> folks that little uh, story. And then we'll be fortunately concluding this podcast until next time. So go ahead. Tell them what happened, Jane. Well, I have to preface this with we, you were doing a church podcast. I think it was one night and you, <laughs> I don't know how I came up, but you were talking about a Ferrari and you had pictures of, a, of <laughs> an ad from a car dealership or something. I don't know, but you were, you were all talking about this Ferrari and how great it was and so forth. So anyway, we had our session and, and you said uh, that you wanted to talk to John and I was just, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe you were wanting to talk to one of my cards because that's just, I never did that through all the years of counseling with all the counselors I had, except for that first psychiatrist. I never, never could bring myself to let the parts come out and talk. So you called John forward and he showed up and you started a conversation with him and uh, you said, he said, well, where, where's Jan? And he says, she's, um, is Jan, you ask him if Jan was around and he says, yeah, she's listening with one ear. <laughs> and you said, well, why is she listening with one ear? And John says, well, she's behind a door and she's got one ear on the door listening. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, hmm. And, and I'm watching, and I see, my, I see a door, like a metal door, freestanding. There's no walls. It's freestanding. <laughs> it's freestanding. It has like a glass in the top of it, like you'd see in a, in a hospital or something. And I'm behind the door, listening, and there's no walls. <laughs> so it's just a door. And you said... He said, okay, Jan, um, uh, we're going to take some responsibility now. <laughs> he said, I want you to open the door 
and you can shut it again if you need to, but I need you to open the door now. And so I just, in my mind, I just saw that that metal door turn into a, a white French door with glass top to bottom and it just swung wide open. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> that was pretty interesting. But the Lamborghini part of this whole story is you had called Jesus in, and I forget how that happened, that, um, <laughs> that you had Jesus address John, and G I saw Jesus hand John a set of car keys. <laughs> And the car keys were to a Lamborghini. <laughs> I'm like, go figure. Jesus in a Lamborghini? <laughs> well, he had a yellow car before that. Oh. Yes. He, he did. He had a yellow, old, like an old 36 Chevrolet or some kind of old, old old car and he was in the trunk and he wouldn't come out of the trunk. <laughs> yes. And so you talked to him about the trunk and it turned out that John was in the trunk because this programmer that we had told John that he was tr junk in the trunk. And that's because his programmer was a sodomizer. And he had sodomized me all my life. And John was, John was the part that he had called out for that. So when you found that out, you, you said, the yellow car has to go. <laughs> Jesus stepped in with a much better model. <laughs> okay. John got a new red Lamborghini, started driving it five miles an hour. <laughs> You, you suggested that we build a racetrack inside. Yes. So we'd have something to drive on because he'd never driven before. Come on now. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been an ongoing um, story. An, uh, yeah, ongoing story ever since. So we, we get a lot of laughs about the red Lamborghini that only goes five mile an hour. Well. Yeah, right. What was also pretty funny was, you know, I have this pattern. I often, you know, will give parts bread of life. And mm -hmm. oh, the first yeah. time I tried to offer John the bread of life, he got confused because Jan doesn't do gluten, Dan Duvall. <laughs> is it, is it gluten-free? <laughs> I know. What? How you old are you? You offered him bread, and he says, I can't eat that. And I'm behind the scenes. I can't talk, but I'm hearing it. And I'm like, I'm laughing because I know why he won't take the bread. But you have no idea why he won't take the bread. <laughs> it was funny. Oh, my. But, um, you know, this, 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 th th thank you so much, Jed, for breaking this all down. I want to point out one more thing. Folks, if you think that Jesus has a poverty spirit and appreciate people being broke, busted, and disgusted, I want to tell you something. I have learned a lot from Jesus by watching how he deals in the spirit realm. Because when Jesus does something in the spirit realm, he doesn't do this. It's like, all right, I'll, 
you take you out of that yellow car, I'm going to give you an 88 Volkswagen with rust. That's not Jesus. Jesus, he is extravagant. He is extraordinary. And he is over the top. And some people, they think they're being very religious by, you know, their poverty mentality and spirit. That's not from Jesus. I know Jesus. I see Jesus work with people all the time, very directly. And I can tell you, he is a God of abundance and more than enough. It's just amazing. So anyway, Jan, I want to say thank you for your bravery, for your honesty, for all of the uh, boldness that it takes to get up here to talk, knowing that thousands of people are going to hear you. I mean, just spill the beans, man. I I am so proud of you. And uh, folks, until next time, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. If you would like to connect with us at Bride Ministries or to support what we are doing financially, visit us at www.bridemovement.com.